go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to continue in our series. And uh, so I have the privilege of being able to open God's Word with you this morning and continuing on in the book of 1 Timothy. And we're in chapter 4. We'll be in verses 6 through 10 today. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday, and the week after that is Easter. Thank goodness. And so uh, we'll be taking a break from our series here in 1 Timothy, but we'll, we'll return to it as quickly as we can. Uh, but for today, we'll stay here in 1 Timothy. I'm going to go ahead and read our passage, and then we'll pray one more time. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Would you join me in prayer one more time this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you now with this passage. And Lord, our desire is to honor you with it to teach according to the word that you've given us. And Father, I pray that I would now be able to, to do that faithfully. I pray that you would open our eyes to do exactly what we just sang about, that we would be able to behold you, that we would see that nothing compares to you. There is nothing more dazzling, nothing more valuable that we will ever find in this world or the next. And Father, I pray that we would be able to clearly see that today and to be reminded of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Timothy, in this series that we've been going through so far, we've seen Paul addressing his disciple, Timothy, so to speak, the one that he's kind of trained and raised up and then released. He's the pastor of this church here at Ephesus. And we've seen various instructions that Paul has given to Timothy. Some of those instructions are about the church that he's serving at and the way that that church should be ordered and the way they should be doing things. So, for instance, we've seen instructions about the qualifications that their pastors should have, the qualifications that the men who serve there as deacons should have in the church and how those things should be applied. We've also seen, we saw this last week, Paul addressing to Timothy some specific false teachers who are there that are, are, are leaving the doctrine that they've been entrusted with. And they're teaching things not according as uh, they've been taught as they should be. And so Paul's been instructing Timothy how to deal with that. And that instruction continues in this passage today. Pastor Tim looked at that last week in verses 1 through 5. And that, that instruction, in a way, kind of continues in verses 6 through 10... And what we're going to see is that essentially what Paul tells Timothy to do is to fall back on the training that he's received. He's received training, and what he is to do is to fall back onto that training. And the passage we're looking at is really all about training. It's about the training that Timothy had received. It's about the training that he was to practice, and it was a, you'll see about the training that he was to continue in. 
while he was in his ministry. It's all about this training that he has. We see in verse 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. If you put these things, what are these things? The things are exactly what he just got done talking about in verses 1 through 5 where he is addressing this false teaching, this false doctrine, where if you, if you maybe weren't here last week to hear Tim or you weren't able to hear that sermon or you just don't remember it, uh, where there were false teachers who were coming and what they were teaching is that there is a next level of holiness that you can attain to. It's good to be down here. It's good to have that. But there's a new level, a higher level of holiness that you can attain to if you abstain from certain things that are fleshly. And worldly, things like marriage, things like certain foods. If you abstain from those things, you can be on a higher plane of holiness than all the other Christians around you. And that was not true. That is not part of the words of the faith and of good doctrine that Timothy has been entrusted with, that he has. There's, there's two really big problems with that teaching, actually. On the one hand, it kind of takes us back. One of the reasons I had us read that passage from Leviticus this morning is because what they were doing is very similar to what Nadab and Abihu were doing in that instance, weren't they? They're adding to the law of God or changing the law of God. Anytime you try to require what God does not require or you forbid something that does not forbid, what you are essentially doing is putting yourself in the shoes of God, saying, I actually know what would be better in this instance. God didn't say we can't do this, but he probably should have, right? How arrogant does that sound? And that's exactly what they were doing. But really the bigger issue behind this false teaching that was going on was at the end of the day, it really is a salvation by works mentality. It's this idea that holiness is achieved by the things that I do. And so I do these so that I can be holy and so that God will be pleased with me. And that is not the gospel, that is not what Paul calls the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. That's not the gospel. We know that we are not saved. We are not saved and we are not made more holy by the things that we do. We actually stand before God because of our failure to do all those things as sinners who justly deserve his wrath. But in his grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so that we might be forgiven for our sin. That is what makes you holy. Not you, Jesus. That's what makes you holy. And so Timothy was to refute this doctrine. And he was to put the words of the faith before the brothers. And that is how he would be a good servant of Jesus. Take away the bad and then provide the good. Uh, the image that kind of comes to my mind when he's instructing Timothy of what he's to do is this image of someone who is preparing a meal and then they put it on the table and serve it to honored guests. And that really is the, the job of a pastor in a big way. That was what Timothy was to be doing. He had a church there in Ephesus and his job was to take away bad food that they were getting, the junk food that they, even though it tastes good, right? It's not good for you. He was to take that bad food away and he was to prepare meals from the word of God, spiritual meals, and serve those to his people so that they might be uh, nourished, so that they might be able to enjoy it and be refreshed by it. That's the job of a pastor. 
Now, if that's the job of a pastor, it's pretty important that a pastor be trained in that word and in that doctrine. The last thing that any of us want is to be the honored guest of someone who can't cook. That's no good, is it? It's great to be an honored guest, but not of someone who can't cook, not of someone who's not going to serve you a good meal that you can actually enjoy, that you're actually going to be nourished and encouraged by. Pastors must be trained. If they're not, they can't do the job that God has called them to do. So in another one of the letters that Paul would write to a young man named Titus, in Titus 1.9, when he's also talking about the qualifications of an elder to him, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. As taught, meaning they've been taught the trustworthy word. They've been entrusted with this trustworthy word. It's been given to them. It says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Take away the bad, serve the good. And that's exactly what Paul is instructing Timothy here to do. He was to take this false teaching and remove it from the table, so to speak, and put down a full spread of good food that the congregation can thrive on, that they can have. If we think about the job of a pastor, if that's what they are to do, if, if Pastor Tim's role here, Pastor Spencer, Pastor Dave, if my role here is to serve you good food, Church, it is in your best interest that we are trained men. That we've been trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that has been passed down from Christ to Paul to Timothy and so on and so forth all the way till we get to here. It is imperative that we are actually trained. That we know what it is we are supposed to be teaching you. It's in your interests. It's your health that's at risk, church. You're the ones who are going to be fed. You're the ones who are going to be nourished. So we need to be men who are trained in how to cook for you the best meals that we can. It's in your best interest that we continue training in our lives, that we continue to learn, that we continue to grow. Not only that we should be trained men, but church, it's also something that we have to recognize that we also have to be aware that it's our responsibility to identify qualified men from our church and to train them for the work of the ministry that they are called to. Now, as a church, we have different opportunities to do this. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and through that opportunity, we are able to financially contribute to six seminaries that are world-class seminaries across the United States where men do go and they're trained in their doctrine, in the word to be taught, that's a great thing, and that's a good thing that we should be part of. But at the end of the day, this is our responsibility as a church. The responsibility is on our shoulders to ensure that men among us who are maybe called to ministry or called to missions that are raised up from among us, it is our job to make sure that those we send out are trained properly. That's the job of you as the church. That's the job of us as pastors. And so we have to be in a place where we are willing to actually dedicate the time that is necessary to do that because training doesn't happen overnight. You know that. It doesn't happen overnight. We also have to be willing to contribute the resources necessary to do that so that if there are men among us here, even women, who could serve in various roles in the church or on the mission field, 
we have to be ready to point them out and where they're at, to call them to that task and then take it upon ourselves to train them so that they can actually accomplish that task. I don't have any doubt that there are possibly some here now. You could be in the ministry five years from now. You might be a line worker or you might work at a restaurant or you might be a teacher right now. You could be retired or you might be in high school. But it might be your calling to be in ministry or to go onto the mission field. And if that is the case, it's our job as a church to train you. The same as Timothy was prepared with this training, the same that he was equipped, that he was now to fall back on, it's our job as a church to continue this line of training. But Paul continues to encourage Timothy in his training in verse 7. Not only to be trained in the good doctrine and the words of the faith that he has, but what that good doctrine and the words of faith are supposed to produce in him and how he is to continue his training using that doctrine. He says in verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So first, Paul tells him, you need to avoid this, but then you need to pursue this. Don't do this, instead do this. Very clear, right? That's what he tells him. He says first, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is essentially saying, uh, and what it literally means in the text, are old wives' tales. Don't dedicate yourself to old wives' tales. Silly stories that have no grounding in reality. Don't devote yourself to those things. They are of no benefit to you. This takes us back to something that Paul said earlier in 1 Timothy in chapter 1. You can flip your page and look there with me if you want. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 6, where he warns him at the very beginning about these false teachers. And this is the warning. It sounds very similar to what he just said. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. I think sometimes when we come to passages like this and we hear phrases like what he said here, irreverent, silly myths, or if we look in 1 Timothy 1, where he calls it myths, endless genealogies, and speculations, vain discussion. What comes to our mind oftentimes are the long, drawn-out conversations that people get in in the church that come across as just nitpicking about certain things, things that at the end of the day don't really matter or easily cause division, disruption within a church body. So I think that sometimes we can be tempted to look at this passage and say, see, see, we shouldn't be talking about these things that divide us as a church. We shouldn't be discussing these things. We need to just leave them over here because at the end of the day, it just feels like vain discussion and speculations. I don't necessarily think that this passage should encourage us to not address the finer points of doctrine that are difficult to understand and can be difficult to get to the bottom of. 
We shouldn't ignore something if God's word addresses it. But therein, what I, therein lies what I think we should take away from these, these warnings that Paul's giving about these old wives' tales, these vain discussions. Essentially what he's saying is that there is a general principle that where Scripture is silent, we need to be silent as well. If Scripture does not directly address something or directly teach something or, or the, the combination of Scriptures together does not lead to certain conclusions, we need to just be willing to stay back from them, to not address them. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you can't have your interests, your hobbies, your own personal studies, but I would warn you, those things tend to be rabbit trails that lead to nowhere. And at the end of the day, they're not helpful. And they're not helpful because what ends up happening is you've devoted all of this time and all of this discussion, all this mental energy to these things where at the end of the day, the Bible does not have a definitive answer. It doesn't really tell us what we're to think about who built the pyramids or some other crazy thing that you might want to study or know. At the end of the day, it's a rabbit trail to nowhere and it leaves you with no appetite for those things which are actually good and definitive and sound, the things that you actually need to understand and learn and grow in. It leaves you with no appetite. You're so, you're so off the rails with this exotic food over here, you've forgotten about the basic food pyramid that you need to be consuming each and every day. You've devoted all your time to that. And so he tells him, have nothing to do with those things. They are a waste of your time. Don't do it. Instead, what you are to do, Paul tells Timothy, is train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Some of your translations, if you're not using the ESV like I am, some of your translations might say things like exercise yourself unto godliness. Or it might say discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It might say things like that. But the image, either way, is one where you are devoting work and energy. There is strenuous activity and training involved in pursuing what Paul calls godliness. That's what you are to pursue. He's encouraging Timothy to do this, and then through Timothy, the church there at Ephesus. He's encouraging them to do this as well. So Timothy has been trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine, but his training was not over. His training was to be this ongoing process where now, don't pursue these myths, pursue godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Now, anytime you have a goal in mind when it comes to training, so think about physical exercise right now. You might have a goal of, I don't know, lifting five more pounds or shaving a couple of seconds off of a race that you've been running, or maybe you're, you're not trying to add to a number. Maybe you're trying to remove a couple numbers or something like that. Maybe that's your goal. You have to know what your goal is to know what the training regimen needs to be to achieve that goal. If you can't clearly define the goal, you don't know what you have to do. And that's where, that's where we are right now in this passage. If, if what Timothy is to do is to train himself for godliness... If we are to train ourselves for godliness, we actually have to know what that means. And godliness tends to be one of those words that we, we can use in an everyday sentence, and it makes sense to us and to those around us. Oh, that person is a, a godly person. Oh, wow, what a godly individual. That lady is so godly. We use words like that, but at the end of the day, how do you, how do you define what it means to be godly? 
and what godliness is. It's not, it's not that easy when it comes to it. In the pastoral epistles, which is the fancy word for 1 Timothy and the other letters that Paul would write to pastors, to 2 Timothy, and then and there's only one Timothy. It's just a second letter. There's not another guy named Timothy. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles. Paul is particularly concerned with this understanding of godliness. The word godliness or godly appears several times in Scripture, but the majority of times it appears in the New Testament is in these letters that are written to pastors, that pastors are then to disperse into their churches. He's particularly concerned with this idea of godliness. And maybe when I say that term, you can think of people in your life that you know, individuals from your past, maybe like a Sunday school teacher or, or a pastor or even a parent or another family member that you just think of. And man, that, I remember that person was such a godly person. What does that mean, though, that they were a godly person? If we were to have a big, long discussion about it and try to turn to a ton of places that we don't really have the time to do, I think where we would end up is we would say this, and I'll try to show you this from a few places. Godliness is an attitude and disposition that leads you to action. Godliness is an attitude and a disposition that leads you to action. It is, more specifically, a reverence and a respect for God that has a real impact on the way you live. It is a reverence and respect for God that has a real impact on the way you live. At the end of the day, it is an attitude. It is how you think about God. How you think about God that leads you to live in a certain way. So to give you an example, we see this, or we saw it back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is giving some instructions to women, telling them that uh, they should not be adorning themselves with costly attire. Instead, they should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's really important. Women who profess godliness adorn themselves with good works. What this does is it helps us see godliness is not an action. It is not a list of things that you do. If you do this, that makes you godly. That identifies you as godly. That's not what it means. Godliness is not an action, but it leads to actions. The result of godliness is actions in your life. It's the reason why a woman who professes godliness, that should be evident in her life. She is clothed with good works. So we see that. But we also learn something else about godliness from before our passage in chapter 3, in verse 16. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at this passage. We know that Christian godliness is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 of, of chapter 3. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Any Christian sense of godliness is rooted and founded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It cannot be separated from that. This attitude and this disposition of awe and reverence for God is produced by the work of Jesus Christ in our lives and what he has done for us. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ produces this reverence and awe, or we might even call it a, a commingling of fear and love for God all at the same time, the way we see him and relate to him. 
And we see that displayed in the outward actions that characterize believers' lives. So going again to Titus, which is uh, a couple books over, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we see this displayed here. So Titus 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is the grace of God that has appeared? Well, 1 Timothy 3, 16, He was manifested in the flesh. The grace of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has appeared, and what has he done? He's brought salvation for all people. That is what he's done. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And look at this. This is the result. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so godliness is not this checklist of actions, of things that you do. That was the false doctrine that was just refuted, wasn't it? That in order to achieve this level of holiness, you have to abstain from this, you have to abstain from this, you have to do this, you have to do this, and then you're holy, and then you are like God. No, that's not what godliness is. Godliness is a disposition of the heart, an attitude of the heart towards God of reverence and fear and love and awe towards him that leads to a changed way that you live before him. It's not a means to earn the favor of God. It is a natural response to the favor of God that is gifted to you in Jesus Christ. That is how you obtain godliness. Well, okay, if that's what godliness is, now there's a difficult question of, how am I supposed to train myself for that? How am I supposed to do that? How do I train myself to possess an attitude? How do I train myself to have a disposition towards God of fear, of love, of reverence and awe? How do I train myself for that? Because I know how to train myself to get better at the piano. I know how to, I don't know if I ever would get better at the piano, but I know how to train myself to shoot better free throws. I know how to train myself when it comes to running faster. I know how to train myself in all of those things. But those are skills. It's not the same thing. It's not about the physical ability or even a physical practice. Maybe a, a way to help us think through how we train ourselves in godliness is to think through a more of an earthly scenario of, uh, of historical figures. Uh, if there's a historical figure that has done great things throughout history, how do, we, how do we as people increase our respect for historical figures that have done great things throughout human history? How do we train ourselves to have more respect for those men and women in history? We learn about them. We read about them in a book. We learn about them at a class that we take or in a movie that we would watch about historical figures who have certain personalities, who have uh, gone through certain trials in their lives or have achieved great things. When you learn those things about them, you, you have a certain reverence and awe about them. Maybe you've heard somebody ask a question that goes something like, if you had 10 minutes to have a conversation with anybody through history, who would it be? And you start running through your head the people that you respect, the people you look up to, the people you find interesting. 
And that is who you would like to meet, to have a conversation with, to get to know, to ask questions. But to, for your respect and all of those people to grow, you have to learn about them. This is where we see that there is an unbreakable connection between the teaching of the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that Timothy has received and the godliness that was supposed to characterize his life. There is an unbreakable connection because one leads to the other. The teaching that Timothy had received was so important because without it, the respect and the reverence and the awe and love for God could not be there. That is what was to produce that kind of disposition in his life. So Paul was particularly concerned about Timothy's teaching and his life. And you see that dynamic all through First and Second Timothy. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is usually one or the other. Watch your teaching or watch your life. It's because the two are intimately connected. And it's no different for you. And it's no different for me. This is one of the reasons why earlier in First Timothy in chapter 3, when he's giving character quali- or qualifications for elders and for deacons that we walk through, they're almost always character qualifications, life qualifications. Do you know why? It's because anybody could stand up here on this stage and I could tell you what I believe, but it's not until you actually look at my life and the way that I live and the way that I interact with people that you actually truly see what I believe because what I believe is going to impact the way I interact with the people around me. Anybody can say they believe something, but it's only by observing carefully their life and the way they manage their family, and the way they treat people, that you can see what they truly believe. Their character, so to speak, is an outworking of their doctrine. And so to train yourself for godliness is to exercise your mind in the things of God. It is to rehearse God's truth that he has revealed to us in his word to yourself over and over again. It's to take the words of the faith and of the good doctrine and feed it to yourself over and over and over and over again. It's just like when you're home and you go home, you're not, I mean, you might be worried about what you eat every single day and it might be hard to come up with decisions, but at the end of the day, you know you just need to eat. You gotta eat something. And you can't just eat once a week. You gotta keep eating and eat again and again and Maybe again and again and again, sometimes too much. But you need to eat. You need to consistently feed yourself. And to exercise or to train yourself for godliness is to continue to feed yourself the truths of God's word, especially as we find them in the gospel, so that over time we continue to grow in our awe and our reverence of who God is. And as we learn God's word and see what it says, that has a result of godliness in our lives. The godliness leads to a changed life. And so that's why we don't really like to stand up here on a Sunday morning and tell you guys, listen, here's the 10 things that you should do this week. You need to go home and do this and do this. Make sure you do this on Tuesday and this on Friday. Prepare for this day by doing this on Thursday. It's because that's not ultimately the kind of change you need. Ultimately, the kind of change you need is is a knowledge of God and of what he has done for you, and of who he is. And when you're able to actually see who God is, and know him, 
Know yourself before him as a sinner and of what his son Jesus Christ has done for you. Everything else just kind of follows. It'll just kind of follow as a natural outworking of godliness that you adopt as you come to know the Lord. And so we as a church, we do this both what you might say corporately and privately. So corporately, you're here right now. We're here as a church. We're together. And if you want to think of it, this building is, is it's like our gym. You didn't know it. You can tell somebody this week, I went to the gym this week. Right? You can impress them maybe. But the exercise that we do as a church is not the physical exercise. The exercise we do is we exercise our knowledge of God in his word. And we worship him together. And so when you come here, the exercises you're doing are not a squat or a deadlift or a lunge or something like that. But what you're doing is you're listening to God's word read to you. You're reading along with it. You're singing God's word to one another as we're here for worship. You're listening to me explain God's word to you and what it means. And all of that is meant to be an exercise in training yourself for godliness. That's what that is. We do that together as a church. But we see in scripture there's warrant to not just simply do that as a church, but you have every opportunity to do that yourself as an individual. You have a Bible, whether you brought it with you or not, maybe. And if you don't, you can take the black one that's in the pew. Take it home. It's yours. Now you do have one. But there's nothing stopping you from opening your Bible and continuing to read God's word and to, to come to a, a fuller knowledge of who he is. It's been a practice throughout church history, not simply to, to read the Bible, but to try to memorize it, to commit it to memory for the good benefits that come through that. To see, you can sing the songs we sing here to yourself all you want to continue to train yourself and exercise yourself in the godliness that we are to work for, that we are, what Paul will say later on in this passage, toil for. This exercise is a priority in our life. And it's a priority because of the value that it holds. And that's exactly where Paul goes next in verse 8. Look at verse 8 to see the value of godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now as much as you and I might like to say that this is our new favorite verse because Paul just said that physical exercise isn't that important. Uh, that might be our favorite verse, our new favorite verse. That's not actually what he said, okay? He says that it is of some value, right? Bodily training is of some value. Being a healthy person is valuable. It's good to be able-bodied and able to live a full life that's less likely to be plagued with health problems or limitations, right? Uh, people who are disciplined and who have trained their body probably have certain skills that will be useful to them in life. And so he's not saying it's a bad thing. He's just saying that the benefit of bodily training is limited versus the training in godliness that has value in every way because it's not limited to this world. It goes on. It has value for us, he says, not only in the present life, but also for the life to come. Training in godliness is valuable because it benefit, its benefits extend beyond this life. Later on in this same book, in chapter 6, Paul would tell Timothy this in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of 
the world. Everything you gain in this world, we tend to think of that as, as money, as possessions, as things. It's also physical abilities. Everything you gain will be lost. It'll be gone. But the one thing that you will never lose is godliness. That will continue to go with you. In fact, that will be perfected because your vision of God won't be plagued by lack of knowledge. It won't be plagued by uh, fuzziness in your life due to sin that still dwells in your heart. God will be on full display for you to see. And there will be nothing holding you back from the kind of fear and love and reverence and awe that God is due in your life. You can take it with you. So you maybe can bench 150 pounds. That's cool. That's good. You can run a 5K. Good job. Way to go. You know how to play two instruments or three or four. Wow, that's, that's impressive. That's a good skill to have. We need more of you up here, okay? That's good. Maybe last week you got a new PR on your time. Congratulations. That's a good thing. You're training for a marathon that you want to run next year. Awesome. Keep at it. Or maybe you were able to lose five pounds this last week. I don't know how you did that. That's amazing. Good job. Listen, there, there's nothing bad about any of those things. In fact, it would be a good thing for you. It'd be a good thing for me to lose five pounds for sure. But it's a good, all those are good things. But we have to understand those are limited things. None of those things can be our priority in life because all, one day none of it will matter anymore. None of it will matter. None of those things are bad. But any kind of physical ability you're able to train yourself for, anything that you're able to give yourself, that you're capable of doing here in this life, one day, it won't matter. You can't take it with you. But godliness is not like that. In fact, most, for most of us, all of the physical abilities that you are able to train yourself for in this life, they will deteriorate before you die. You might be able to train yourself to live this way or to do this thing, but guess what? One day, you're going to get old, and you can't do it anymore. You can't, you can't even run anymore. You can't lift this heavy weight. You can't do any of that stuff. And so all those things are going to be gone even before you die. But godliness is not limited to physical abilities like that. Godliness is capable of growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. This is where I, I really hope that this passage can be an encouragement to those of you among us this morning who are a little more advanced in years. Because I've talked to you, and I know how you feel many times. You feel bad that you're not able to be as involved, maybe, as you once were. You feel bad that you're not able to physically contribute in the ways that you used to in the past, whether that's on a work day that we, that we asked you to come up and help clean up the balcony. You'd love to do that, but you physically can't anymore. You would love to hold a baby back in the nursery, but you're afraid you drop them because your hands just can't hold on anymore, and you feel bad. You feel like you, you have nothing left to give. You feel like you have nothing left to do. I, I've talked to you. I know that you're there. What I hope can encourage you in this passage this morning is that you still have something very valuable that you possess, 
And that for us as a church, especially as you look around and it's great to see so many young people that are part of our church. I include myself in that group. So many young, hey, don't laugh at me. You have something we don't have. You have a lifetime of training in godliness for us to look at and for us to see of what it looks like to be a person that has lived their entire life growing in the knowledge of God and has a reverence and a love for the Lord to be an example to us. And so I hope that you can be encouraged to know you have something far more valuable than any kind of physical ability to serve in any kind of capacity. We need you. I need examples like you. The people around you need examples like you. So be encouraged. Paul says you have something of immense value. And please share it with us. Let us see what that is. Since godliness does not deteriorate, but it goes with you, Paul says what he does in the next verse. Look at verses 9 and 10. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So he's saying that since is since it's true that godliness holds promise for this life and the life to come, we must work and struggle to strive after this godliness. We must have this. But there's an important distinction here. In all of our work, in all of our toil, and all of our striving, I've got to remind us yet again, where does our holiness come from? Not from ourselves not from the things that we do. It only comes from Christ. He even says that here in verse 10. Because we have our hope set on the living God. Your hope, my hope, is not set on the things that I'm capable of doing each and every week to grow myself in godliness. That's not where my hope is set. My hope is set on God. I am able to toil. I am able to strive. I am able to work towards godliness because my hope is on God. It is what allows me and enables me to do this. Without my hope on God, I can't be godly. It's impossible to be godly and not have your hope set on him. He is our hope. Our hope is set on the living God. It says, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now that can be a little confusing at first when it says, so he's the savior of all people? Meaning everyone will be saved? No, we, we know that that's not what that means. There's other places in Scripture that won't allow us to interpret it that way. And it says, especially of those who believe. Does that mean that there's different ways of being saved? There's stronger salvations than other ones? You can be saved by this or you can be saved by belief? No, we know that's not true either. I think what Paul is communicating here is not necessarily this, this process of salvation, but he's reminding us of who God is. He is our Savior, he is the one who saves us, and the way that we are saved by him is by believing in what his son Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf, by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, something we're gonna be celebrating in just a few weeks, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's highlighting here, who God is as the savior and how he saves us through belief. You've probably heard the well-known passage, John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those words, those are the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that Timothy received. Those are the words of the faith and the good doctrine that we have received. And those are the words that we are supposed to root ourselves in and ground ourselves in and remind ourselves of every single day and every single week as we come here and as we interact with one another as a church family to build one another up in the truth of the gospel so that we might be trained towards godliness. Godliness is rooted in that message of salvation found only in Jesus Christ by faith in what he has done. It grows by being nourished and hearing it over and over again. And as I've already said, one day that godliness will be fully realized because the glory of God will be on display and we will have nothing left but awe and wonder at who God is and what he has done for us. Nothing left. I could maybe say it like this to finish. Godliness is gifted to you in Christ practiced while you live and perfected when you die. Godliness is gifted to you in Christ, practiced while you live and gifted to you, or I'm sorry, and perfected when you die. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to open your word, to be reminded of the truth of who you are and Lord, especially of the gospel message that we have heard. Father, I pray now that it would produce the fruit in our lives of, of godliness. Lord, of a life that looks at you in wonder and awe and reverence. Father, would you give us a mingled fear and love for who you are so that it might produce the life in us that is full of good works, of service to our brothers and our sisters, of witness to those who don't know you, of a life that desires to honor you, to live faithfully for you. Lord, help us not to look to the things of this world that can never produce that kind of spiritual fruit. Lord, help us to have our confidence set firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can grow so we can live lives that are pleasing to you. But Father, I pray that now you would help us worship you as we should. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.